go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Enter coupon code CLEVERJUNE when you check out for a 15% discount on the best reindeer for biking and walking. While you're on the website, take a look at Cleverhood's new Urbanaut Trench. We think this might be their coolest product yet. The trench comes in three stylish patterns, raglan cut sleeves make for ease of movement, and the hood is even designed to fit over your bike helmet. Three layers of waterproof breathable fabric and waterproof zippers keep you and your stuff dry, and subtle reflective threading makes you visible in the dark without making you look like a gigantic traffic cone. The Urbanaut Trench is thoughtfully designed, carefully crafted, and sustainably sourced with all of the quality we've come to expect from Cleverhood. Again, go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars. Enter coupon code CLEVERJUNE when you check out. That's a 15% discount. Good through the end of the month. Far too often when somebody behaves like a butthole and cuts you off or just does something asserting their need to get where they're going over everybody else, invariably, three minutes later, you pull up next to them at a red light and you just look at them and shrug and say, you have two children in the backseat of your Mercedes Schwarzenegger tank. Was it really worth risking their lives? This is the War on Cars. I'm Doug Gordon. So every now and then when someone notable writes something or shares something on social media that's related to or at least adjacent to the things we talk about on the podcast, we tweet a greeting. Welcome to the War on Cars. And that's exactly what happened after we read a column last year in Outside titled Nick Offerman's Call of the Candy Ass. Most people know Nick Offerman from his time playing Ron Swanson on the NBC comedy Parks and Recreation. Welcome to my haven. Thank you. You were the first non-me to set foot in this building in 10 years. Um, Ron, none of this is up to code. Sure it is. It's up to the Swanson code. There's no drainage, doesn't seem to be any ventilation. You've got hazardous chemicals over here. Yeah, which only I'm breathing. It's the same liberty that gives me the right to fart my own car. Are you going to tell a man that he can't fart in his own car? You may have also seen his more recent and highly lauded turn as Bill, a survivalist whose fears of the apocalypse come true on the HBO series The Last of Us. So what, you were a prepper or something? Survivalist. Maybe you are decent people. Maybe not. Doesn't matter. We're self-sufficient here. I don't need you or your friend complicating our lives. Is that clear? In the outside column, Offerman writes about Henry David Thoreau, toughness, and the thing that got our attention, riding his bike to work in both New York and Los Angeles and dealing with some rather hostile drivers. A lot of our listeners sent us the column with great excitement. Nick Offerman, you know, Ron Swanson, he's one of us. That was a common theme. So we welcomed Nick Offerman to the War on Cars, at least on Twitter. Now, in this episode, we have the great privilege of actually welcoming Nick Offerman to the War on Cars. In addition to his acting, Nick Offerman runs Offerman Woodshop, a woodworking collective in L.A. He's also a humorist and the author of five books, including one with his wife, the actress Megan Mullally, as well as the book we discuss in this interview where the deer and the antelope play, the pastoral observations of one ignorant American who loves to walk outside. As you'll hear, it has a lot of overlap with the issues we frequently discuss here on The War on Cars. One quick note, we depend on listener support to produce the podcast. To help out, head to thewaroncars.org, click support us, and enlist today. Starting at just $3 per month, you'll get ad-free versions of episodes like this, as well as access to exclusive bonus content. Plus, we will send you stickers and a handwritten thank you note. Now, on behalf of my co-hosts Aaron Naperstek and Sarah Goodyear, please enjoy our interview with Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman, welcome 
to The War on Cars. Thank you very kindly for having me. I think that we want to talk a little bit about how it is that you got here. There was a column that you wrote for Outside Magazine that brought you to our attention. I mean, not that we didn't know who you are anyway. Obviously, we know you from your role on Parks and Rec as Ron Swanson. But in the outside piece, you're actually yourself. And you talk about the experience of riding a bike, both in New York and in Los Angeles. And you talk about how you were riding from the Upper West Side to Red Hook, which is not far from where we are in Brooklyn right now. And you had kind of, well, you liked doing it, but you also had kind of a negative experience. Maybe you could talk about that. Sure. I mean, I would open with a couple of caveats. I am a bicycle enthusiast. I I love riding. But in my adult life, in my particular circus act, I usually have enough plates spinning that I can uh, begin to thrive commuting by bicycle, but I never have time to like join any groups. So I'm always like a big fan of this effort, for example, but I've never ridden. I think in my whole life, the only time I've ridden a bike with other people is my hilarious name dropping mentor that turned me on to cycling, which is Conan O'Brien. We started riding together in Seattle, of all places, and he used to dress in the full racing gear and slather himself in sunscreen. People might not be aware, he's actually seven foot two, and he's, (laughs) he's like an Olympian. He's a gorgeous athletic specimen. But he does such a great job of coming off like a a gangly dork. But he's an incredible athlete. And he turned me on to that. And then we were living in New York. And again, it was through his influence that I bought my first road bike with clip-in shoes. So I I still feel like a freshman all these years later. But it was a specialized tarmac was Uh my bike. And it's still my road bike. I love it. God, it's beautiful. And and so, yes, I, I was commuting. I found this shop to rent on the piers at the bottom of Van Brunt, below the fairway there. Civil War era piers built of stone. Mm -hmm. It was the stone excavated when they dug the Erie Canal, and they brought it to town and used it as as ballast and ships. And I I found this space to build my first canoe, which I'll, I'll have to take that on another podcast, I guess. Is there a canoe podcast? The War on Motorboats? The war on diesel ferries. (laughs) And in my investigations to find like an affordable shop space to commute to from our place on the Upper West Side, I discovered that to get to Red Hook, it was either two trains and a bus, or I could try and incorporate a water taxi, or if I took a cab, it was, and this is pre-Uber, it was exorbitantly expensive and All of these methods took longer than simply riding a bicycle. All the way down the west side, cross over around Wall Street and catch usually the Manhattan Bridge or sometimes for a treat, take the Brooklyn Bridge and try to dodge pedestrians. Either way, and then drop all the way down to that street that ran along the East River in Brooklyn, all the way down to Red Hook. And it was just joyous. I mean, rain or shine, to be able to command a city with that concentrated population by bicycle for a novice, no less, was just magnificent. And so I loved it. And I was in great shape simply from my commute. It was win-win across the board. Did I eat shit a couple times uh, waiting at a light in Chinatown? Yes, I did. <laughs> but fortunately, I'm, I'm a comedian. And so uh, I, I think I got some applause on one of them. In any case, the thing I wrote about was one day just, again, not having like a peer group uh, as a cyclist, I sort of made all these mistakes on my own. And, you know, I could run things past the few people I knew who cycled around the city, but nothing could have prepared me for the day that I was hauling ass down the, that street below the BQE along the East river. Furman street. Furman street. Thank you. And it, it was always hilariously empty. And everybody's sitting in traffic, <laughs> 80 feet above on the expressway. And uh, I was in some sort of reverie 
hauling ass and on the whole commute there were sections of the Hudson River bike path where you could really kick it into gear and try to like go for speed which just cracks me up that you could do that in New York City yeah. and Furman Street was another place I could do that so I you know had fun pretending I was a real cyclist and would get into the hunched over racing position and just try to like crank out a stretch of a couple miles as fast as I could. And I was in this sort of reverie and a car zoomed up next to me and somebody leaned out the back passenger window and spanked me <laughs> fulsomely oh, on my gorgeous, enormous butt cheek. <laughs> And I mean, I was, I was so flabbergasted. I, I pulled <laughs> off. I was terrified. Like it yeah. was really scary. I was going so fast that I, I could have easily wrecked, but I, I also just was, I, I, I just couldn't believe this weird sophomoric sort of bullying violation. I, and, you know, they, they screamed and laughed and zoomed off and I was so upset, I was so emotional that I, I thought to myself, man, if I had a weapon, I would come after you. I had the bicycle version of road rage. I was, I was really upset. I've had that exact experience on a country road in Maine, so a very different setting. But it's very upsetting because you are, you're feeling good, you're on the bike, you're feeling in control. And then here are these people who kind of come along and make you feel... You don't have control over anything. You're not a free person on your bicycle. You're just sharing the road with a bunch of idiots. It's amazing. And as I continued then, this was probably about 15 years ago that I started riding regularly. To this day, I'm just astonished at what your movement is all about. The sense of propriety that drivers have to the point where they'll they'll stop and like pick a fight with a cyclist for having the temerity to want to share the road. It's funny how drivers are always in a rush until the moment that they want to prove something to a cyclist. Like, you're in my way. You're slowing me down. And then they stop their car, get out, and want to pick a fight with you. It's like, oh, suddenly you're not in a rush anymore. Yeah, I guess Taco Bell will still be open when you get there. <laughs> yes. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, and it happens with great regularity. My wife and I talk about it all the time, that Los Angeles traffic is famous for being oppressive and horrible. But like all things, you learn to accommodate it. So it takes 45 minutes to get three miles. And so you just learn to give yourself 50 minutes so that you, at least you're mellow while sitting amongst the Range Rovers and Bentleys. But even when you do that, whether you're in a car or on a bicycle, it seems like people have been deployed across the city to try and kill you with their vehicles or that it's some sort of video game where between here and my wood shop, there will be eight murderers that have been sent to kill you with impossible unbelievable driving maneuvers. Yes, they are going to try to make a left turn across four lanes. And you're just like, wow, th this is incredible. And so you add that to the vulnerability of being on a bicycle. And we're just amazed because far too often when somebody behaves like a butthole and cuts you off or just does something asserting their need to get where they're going over everybody else, invariably, three minutes later, you pull up next to them at a red light and you just look at them and shrug and say, you have two children in the backseat of your Mercedes Schwarzenegger tank. Was it really worth risking their lives? And he rolls down his window and blows out a huge cloud of cigar smoke and says, yes, Nick, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you continue to do it? Why do you continue to ride? I mean, you acknowledge in your in your book, which we all read, that you are one of the people who owns a big, large American vehicle as well. What keeps you on the bike? As we speak, I just got back to town from some months away on an acting job, and I'm, uh, I'm swapping my Ford Expedition, which we purchased to pull our Airstream. I've decided to only rent a vehicle whenever we take the Airstream out, and so I'm shopping for an electric pickup truck. I'm liking the Rivian, but we'll we'll see what happens. But 
A good friend of mine with whom I made a film in 1998 called Treasure Island, uh, his name is Scott King. He's a really brilliant and funny man, and he wrote a little pamphlet that he never could quite get it published, but I was quite moved by it. And it was addressing ills in our society that he perceived. And one of the things he suggested 25 years ago was if we give a shit about our natural resources and about the longevity of our civilization, we should all be riding bicycles whenever possible. And he became an early adherent. He lived in Silver Lake at the time. Now he's in the south of France. But he would ride his bicycle everywhere. And he had an early bike with e-assist. And he lived in a lot of ways that really inspired me as a sort of uh, rural dolt from Illinois, uh, as someone who's a fan of agrarian literature and has a sensibility of how we use our natural resources and where our food comes from and what we do as a civilization to make a mess versus what we do to leave things better than we left them. So uh, I don't know, for one of them, it serves two purposes for me. I obstinately just want to commute by bicycle whenever and wherever I can because it doesn't burn any gas. It is a wonderful way to exercise. I, I really enjoyed playing Ron Swanson, and it was from age 38 to 45. And my uh, my boss, Mike Schur, asked me to stay beefy, which is a <laughs> wonderful thing, especially in Hollywood, to hear from your employer. <laughs> right. Yeah. Keep a few extra pounds on if you don't mind. Okay, I, if you insist. <laughs> And so I loved being a two cheeseburger guy. But then as soon as it was over, <laughs> reality kicked in and was like, you might want to talk to your cardiologist and knock off a few pounds. And so I did. And one of the ways that I love maintaining that is by cycling. I mean, I, to this day, I'm now 52. And whenever I get out on my bicycle, I feel like I'm a kid playing hooky from school. Like no matter where I'm going, if it's for, for work or pleasure, I just feel great. It's a dopamine hit that is exponentially greater than any other form of exercise. I'm sure there are other nerdy ways to get around that also are favorable to mother nature, but none of them are as convenient or available to me as bicycling. I am also struck by how bicycling is, it's a self-sufficient way, right? And a lot of what we associate with the kind of the stereotypes of masculinity is like, you know, masculine men are self-sufficient. And we talk a lot on this show about masculinity and how it's kind of funny that a lot of the way that macho identity is projected through cars is actually sort of the opposite of self-sufficient, right? It's like you're dependent on all these things. And you, as an actor, have been called upon to portray and project masculinity in a lot of ways. But what's really appealing is that there's a sort of softer, more self-aware masculinity. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how masculinity is portrayed in the media and how you've become kind of an icon of masculinity and self-sufficiency. And how all of those things have kind of gotten confused in our modern world. It's it's interesting. Anything you do on television, like if you split firewood on TV or you change a tire or you're a woodworker, like I, I can make a dining table and I've been on TV. So people then introduce me as a master woodworker. <laughs> Somehow the visibility of things just explodes exponentially. And so has taken me by surprise to be considered particularly masculine. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I own a mirror and I understand what I look like and what I sound like, but I also am a fruity, squirrely goofball <laughs> like most people are inside. And we're taught by, you know, the parts of our lives that are brutal to sort of hide that and, and to kill that if possible, if you want to be a proper capitalist. So uh, when it comes to vehicles, when it comes to modern life, I mean, the sense of modern masculinity, I find really funny and kind of sad. I, I feel like 
It's an old-fashioned sensibility that's completely fear-based. Whether you're hiding in a big, loud truck or you're, you're brandishing your tough uh, firearms or other weaponry, all of these are sort of shells. They're carapaces behind which we're able to cower because we're afraid of something, of, you know, people of color or having feelings that my dad will see and he'll take me out behind the woodshed or whatever the vulnerabilities are, we hide them behind this sense of masculinity of like, I'm tough, I will run you over with my vehicle, I'm protected behind my fence. And what true courage requires, I think, is being open to the possibilities of change and learning and growth, which should be required of all of us. If we're human beings, it means we come as a faulty package, like we're born with fallibility, and it never goes away. Like nobody is ever done perfecting themselves. You know, uh, I think that if we have an awareness of our of our foibles and we work towards improving those, that to me requires much more courage and character than if you just build armor around yourself, which allows you to be an asshole. And I don't even like to attribute masculinity to it. Even that genderization is something I would like to help erode in our modern society. Because, for example, when my woodworking book, Good Clean Fun, came out, people would say, oh, this is for, like, dads in the garage. And I would say, no, that's, that's a 1950s, like, Donna Reed sensibility. So by that token, if I want to write a book for women, it has to be about cooking and sewing and and pleasing my man, you know, bringing, bringing him his slippers and his pipe. And then I would go home and bring my wife, Megan Mullally, her slippers and her pipe <laughs> and keep her dinner warm, you know. And so, I mean, I don't consider these things masculine or feminine. I consider them, this is how you have character. This is how I can stand up for people that have less than me. This is how I can try and pursue an equitable life. And that involves self-sufficiency. So, so a cyclist has all of the gear on them, by and large, to take care of their vehicular travel. And if you have a very bad week, all it's going to cost you is a couple of inner tubes or maybe a little bit of grease versus the obvious insane fallacy of the amount of money we spend on our vehicles and our roads and even my family, who are farmers and like self-sufficient Han Solo types, we all talk about it all the time, how modern vehicles have been designed so that you can't be self-sufficient, so that you have to rely on the teat of mother corporation. If anything happens, a light comes on and says, please take this to the dealer and spend a bunch of money. Whereas in decades past, you know, we prided ourselves on being able to fix most car problems with a tool set. So, I mean, it taps into that. And that is, I think, a big part of why I love cycling and the sensibility of cyclists. So, Nick, talking about self-sufficiency and the fallacy of it when it comes to automobiles, I was thinking of it in terms of the context of your character on The Last of Us, on episode three of the first season, Bill, and how he has this own fallacy of sorts of self-sufficiency that he can kind of ride out the apocalypse by himself with enough guns, enough canned food, a stockpile of, of good wine. And I was thinking a little bit in the context of the war on cars where we talk a lot about NIMBYs who oppose things like more neighbors and affordable housing or bike lanes that keep people alive, keep them from getting crushed by cars. And in a way, Bill is kind of the ultimate NIMBY at the start of this episode. You know, he literally preserves the town that he lives in, builds a fence around it, preserves the buildings that people could live in, even though he's not going to let anybody in. And it's only when Frank comes into his life that he starts to gradually, you know, okay, I'll give you a shower and a meal. But over the course of, what, 15 years of that relationship, we just see this deep, deep emotional connection to the point where, and spoilers for folks who haven't seen it, you know, that when it comes to pass that Frank is dying, they have this realization that a life without another person, without taking care of other people, isn't much of a life. So this is a long-winded way of saying, I really was thinking about that in terms of what we talk about, whether, you know, climate change, like what are we doing with this movement as we're moving forward, trying to preserve a, a habitable world 
in the face of overwhelming odds where it looks like we're not even preserving anything, like we're just plugging our fingers in the dike as best we can. I don't know. I don't have much of a question more as just an observation of the ways in which that episode and your career subverts notions of care and masculinity and toughness and plays with these things. I mean, I guess that's acting, right? But I wonder if you could talk about that episode and how you see that as playing out against the backdrop of everything we're talking about, how we share space with other people. That's really at the heart of what I think The War on Cars is about. Well, that's a great question, and it goes right to the heart of whatever my soapbox issue is, speaks to that. And, and I think that that's what's so beautiful about Craig Mazin's writing of The Last of Us. It's amazing that I haven't mentioned Wendell Berry yet. Mm, yes. Wendell Berry says it all turns on affection. And whenever he's discussing any of these issues, he's able to easily trace the the root causes to how we treat our farmers and how we therefore treat the soil from which we produce our living every day. And, you know, these are things that we as a society have gleefully forgotten about. We live in absolute blithe denial of who's producing our food, where does it come from, how are we paying attention? How are we being responsible to the creation in all caps? You know, we are learning more and more as the years go by. The resources of what we have available to us are perfectly finite, and we are creating a lot of problems for ourselves. And Wendell Berry has just such a clear vision about how our habit when a problem arises, whether it's some aspect of climate change or a food shortage or the vast swaths of topsoil that we've lost in the Midwest and the prairie, our foolish tendency is to say, well, the problems of technology, the results of, of the Industrial Revolution have caused this problem, X, Y, and Z. And so instead of taking a sort of indigenous sensibility or aboriginal mindset and saying, where did we go wrong? We never look back and ask that question. Instead, we say, well, Elon, we've caused all these problems with our technology. Can you make it better technology? You know, can we solve it with more technology? <laughs> Ultimately, we're filling the ocean with plastic and then when we're done with that, we'll fill the atmosphere with exploded Elon rockets, as it were. <laughs> and so, I mean, whenever and wherever I can, with my acting roles or my books or when I tour as a humorist, through no fault of my own, I mean, through the genius of Mike Schur and the writers of Parks and Recreation, the comedy and the, and the love in that show are the initial bait or the candy that they are the milkshake that draw all the boys to my yard, uh, <laughs> I believe, is the, is the idiom. And, uh, like, I've just finished doing a run of shows as a humorist around the States, and there's still always a handful of people who somehow come to my shows thinking I'm going to be a Second Amendment jackass and some sort of right-wing fool, and they let me know on social media how disappointed they are and how not funny I am. Mm. And I always feel bad because I, what I try to do with all of my content, I liken it to pizza. I try to make the pizza delicious and irresistible while sneaking a bunch of broccoli <laughs> beneath the cheese. And so as I work in these many different mediums, I try to to sort of promote the Wendell Berry sensibility as much as I can because I can't stop thinking about it. Once I read Michael Pollan's books, which were very much inspired by Wendell Berry, The Omnivore's Dilemma, talking about who produces our food and how and to what detriments to the ecosystem, to the food itself. Our food is so much less nutritious. The animals and eggs and dairy and, and seafood all of these systems are suffering horribly because of capitalism so that somebody can make a buck in our economy. Our food system hurts everything. <laughs> and once you realize that and you think, oh, gosh, you're right. I have no idea where this carrot, this egg, this scallop, etc., where all of this came from. And when I'm talking on stage about this, I say, you know, it's funny. We 
we send our money to these power companies. Like, hey, I'm sending you this money and you're sending me electricity. You're going to be cool, right? Like, <laughs> uh, like I'm trusting you. You're not going to, like, fucking rip off the top of a mountain and, and rape the mountains of eastern Kentucky, right? And, of course, the answer is a resounding, no, don't worry about it, buddy. Here's video <laughs> games. Here's McDonald's. Don't worry about it. You're an American. And so, you know, as a self-sufficient citizen who comes from a family of much better citizens than I am, those are the kind of issues that I try to keep an eye on as I travel through this world. Instead of just becoming a, a blithe, fat, lazy sheep suckling on the teat of capitalism like those grown-ups in the seminal film Wally. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of sheep, I just have to say that when I realized in the book that you were going to go to the farm of James Rebanks, I went nuts because I'm such a huge fan of his. And like the idea of rebuilding a stone wall in the cold with my bare hands with him would be my fantasy. So you lived <laughs> my fantasy there. <laughs> That sounds like an amazing trip. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what it was like to hang with somebody who kind of lives by these principles. It's funny. He makes fun of me because that's my Disneyland is to get to go to a farm and be of use to the farm. And I had just arrived at his farm. We had become friends over Twitter of all places. And we hit it off so powerfully that I made it all the way to his farm in the northwest corner of England. And he said, do you want to mend a stack stone wall? And I said, absolutely. And we went bounding across this pasture. We ran to this wall. The sheep, when they have decided that they've finished with a certain area of pasture, will pick out the weakest spot in a stone wall, and they'll just start kicking it with their forelegs until they've knocked it over and they can jump over into the next pasture. And that's what we're fixing. And the stones had sharp edges and they were heavy. And I just immediately took stock of the situation and said, okay, this is uncomfortable. Like it's cold and wet and we're not wearing gloves. Like in America, I do a lot of labor of all sorts. And I've learned, you know, in my life to say, okay, I'm going to be swinging a sledgehammer or using a shovel or a post hole digger. That's a blister job, so I'll grab some gloves. And what's the temperature? Uh, do I need sunscreen, etc.? And there was just this incredible resilience of, all right, there's work to do. Let's go do it. And I said to him, uh, eventually, I'm amazed that we did that without gloves. And I was, I was uncomfortable. My hands were cold, but only somewhat. Like it was far from being dangerous. I just that was one of my favorite things about it. And it tapped into the way he and his family run their whole farm. And frankly, to the side of Europe that I generally admire, you can tell that they've been dealing with these issues a lot longer than we have. And it's immediately apparent by how much smaller their refuse cans are, for example. Or where we have two or three types of trash cans, they have five because they have much less real estate and many more people per acre. And so when they're dealing with the utilities and with natural resources and with public transit, all of these issues that are near and dear to this podcast, I love to see the way Europeans deal with them, uh, partly because they're made to. I mean, us dipshits here in this country are those same Europeans who just showed up and were like, the trees are without limit. Let's consume them all, you know, <laughs> for 200 years. And then we said, oh, shit, our math was incorrect. Now what? Well, let's try and get to Mars. Again, Wendell Berry always talks about the disease of thinking, whether it's your marriage or your farm or your town. We have this idea in America that we can use things up, and if it goes sour or we exhaust the resource, we just move. <laughs> it's all connected, you know. I have a lot of friends in Los Angeles that didn't grow up in the country who get a flat tire and think, oh, shit, I have to throw away my car and get a new <laughs> car because this one's broken. 
I was really happy to see Aldo Leopold's book, A Sand County Almanac, referenced in, in your book, because it's something that I read in high school. And I think at the time that I read it, I didn't really I didn't really get it. But there's a scene in your book where you're, you know, you become friends with Wendell Berry and his family. And if I'm remembering it correctly, Wendell refers you to Aldo Leopold. He's like, you got to read Le- Leopold. And a Sand County Almanac and, and Leopold's work fundamentally talks about the idea of a land ethic. A land ethic is simply about caring, about people, about land, about strengthening the relationships between people and land. And it's a kind of appeal for a moral responsibility to the natural world. What I was wondering as I was reading this is like, you know, our audience here at the War on Cars and Doug and Sarah and myself, we're like, we're very urban people. You know, we are not living the agrarian dream here in Brooklyn, New York. What does this agrarian ideal mean for those of us who are living in cities and how can we bring this ideal into our urban lives or even like update the ideal so that it resonates with us here in cities? Well, it's a huge question and everything is connected. It all comes back to these same root questions because my family, again, who are incredible citizens. My dad's the mayor of our small town. My sister's the head librarian. But the whole family just lead these lives of service. My dad is a prolific gardener. And so they have a frugality about them. And first and foremost, to me, that's the answer to the question is my mom's side of the family is still farming. They farm corn and soybeans. They're farming for Cargill seeds, basically. And so they're creating raw materials as part of our industrial food system. But the thing is, even in in our little town, the agrarian sensibility, even on most farms, is gone. We're all complicit. You can be in Brooklyn or you can be living out 20 miles outside of New Paltz, and you're still tapped into all the same systems. You still have to go to the Target to get the retail items that you need. You're still dependent on the same utilities. And so it's incumbent on all of us in the cities and out of the cities, first and foremost, to understand where your food is coming from. And to my way of thinking, the most important thing to do is to legislate against this, to create localized food systems so that cities are supported by their local agriculture. I'm not super optimistic about our ability to take these sort of backward steps because it would entail like if you live in New York and it's February, you shouldn't have fresh blueberries. Mother Nature doesn't work that way. You can have them because they're grown in Peru and they're flown in, but that's immediately the problems are apparent. And that can just be extrapolated across pretty much everything we consume. And so by all means, like be very familiar with your farmer's market, but go beyond that because that's a tiny band-aid to our country's agricultural problem. What we need to do is have a healthy metabolism between our local agriculture and our urban areas that doesn't require a booth to be set up once a week. All of our food or the majority of our food should be coming as locally as possible. What I was trying to get at with that question about Aldo Leopold was just like, is there a way to bring this idea of self-sufficiency into the urban environment while also acknowledging that to enable us to be self-sufficient in the big city, we also somehow need to have these gigantic collective systems, these big public systems that function really well. I mean, yes, we exactly. And, and it's, you know, I'm very grateful to be a cheerleader for this subject matter, and I'm, I have a passionate interest in it. But I mean, you know, that question is makes my mind explode. It's it's like <laughs> okay, forget <laughs> it, forget it. Then. I mean, that's our, like, that's our problem, it's, Nick. It's asking. Well, I mean, it's all of our problem. But 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 you're right. I mean, we we collectively have to decide to enact these solutions as a people. I mean, we the the disease that we have in America is that we have been afforded so many freedoms and that has fomented so much progress. But at the same time, we've become inured then to the understanding that we need to also give a shit about our neighbors. 
we've been sold a bill of goods that that we all deserve to build a, a fence and, and live inside of a Mercedes. Mili- what is with those military-looking SUVs? I don't get those. But that's what we're sold. Like, you should have, and you can have all your guns in there, and you can kiss your guns. And this complete weird fallacy that saddens me because the fallacy is winning. People are saying, I'll be goddamned if you're going to take away my idiot stick or my oversized giant pickup truck or my 38 pairs of running shoes. We've been sold that we all deserve to be yacht-owning assholes, and that is going in the wrong direction from solving these issues. And I don't know where to find my optimism because I'm familiar with human nature and we all generally will make the lazy choice when we can. So Aldo Leopold, I close my book with a quote from him that says, I'm going to butcher it, but it's the idea of doing the right thing, even when nobody is looking, even when doing the wrong thing is legal. That's the solution. And, you know, I... I I'm hopeful because there's work to be done in front of us. There are great agricultural movements, including my friend James Rebanks, whose books I'll plug, The Shepherd's Life and Pastoral Song, which in England is called English Pastoral. One of the things that has given me hope recently is the huge response to this Last of Us episode and to your character and this sort of character arc that he goes through, as much as there is laziness, I think there is also a hunger for a better, more decent way of looking at the world. And I know that you must have gotten just such an overwhelming response to that. I mean, did that give you hope? Yes. I mean, my hope comes in increments and it signifies, you know, the response to that episode, for example, and just good art, you know, the response to Mike Schur's shows that are full of heart and ethics and his book, How to Be Perfect, because it is representative of the inexorable small majority that the good side continues to have, you know, slowly and surely we seem to be succeeding at dragging ourselves, kicking and screaming into evolution, into treating all victims of discrimination more equitably over, you know what I mean? Like when I was a kid, gay marriage was a a fairy tale to imagine. And now it's it's a yawn. Like, yeah, duh, of course. The legalization of marijuana, you know, the just the attention being paid, the vocalization that can be given to things like trans rights or Black Lives Matter, or it's not going to happen overnight. It's I, I'm not going to do a comedy show that people are going to say, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> let's, you know, let's, let's change our legislation. But nonetheless, I think slowly, slowly, but surely, you know, we generally keep winning, but but not by a lot. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of people that are screaming and kicking and want to hang on to white supremacy or, you know, the, the material goods that they have been taught. You know, since the New Deal, they were like, by God, this is the American dream. And we, I earned the right to own these, these vehicles and these tennis shoes and these AR-15s. So, you, but, you know, and it's like, yeah, but who are you helping? And so I, that's where I find my hope. And by finding people like like the Berry Center, Wendell Berry's daughter, Mary, runs the Berry Center in Newcastle, Kentucky. And they have a farming program. Just uh, I find places with trying not to spread myself too thin, but like by lending my support to smarter people doing the actual work. So, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to be a brilliant scholar or even a great journalist, but I do have an audience or a readership. And so what I can do is try to uh, bring their attention to the broccoli that I'm sneaking into my pizza. 
So Nick, we started this episode with you talking about cycling in the city, both in New York and Los Angeles. But in your book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, which we've been talking about a lot, you talk about the power of a good walk. I mean, the first third of your book is about a trip you took to Glacier National Park with your friends Jeff Tweedy and George Saunders. But then later in the book, you also talk about how as an actor, you're often dispatched to far-flung cities and you'll have a day off or a couple days off and you just love kind of getting out and taking a good walk. You do have a part that I had forwarded to Aaron and Sarah. I think you're in Glacier National Park and you talk about some folks in like in Jeeps showing up and sort of ruining the experience pretty much for everybody else. And you talk a little bit about these folks who tune their cars, trucks, or motorcycles to growl, roar, or vroom in a way louder than is necessary. And what really got, I think, Aaron's attention <laughs> <laughs> was the issue. line, to further pollute the public airspace that we all share in that manner is to be a bad citizen. Please think about what you're doing it's painful and violent. And I think that line, it's painful and violent, really, and like I said, it got our attention because it's what we talk about on The War on Cars, that your actions have an effect on other people. I wonder if you could talk about your experience of just walking in LA or wherever you happen to be at the moment and what happens sort of when you interact with cars. Again, there's a Wendell Berry quote for everything, but... He talks about, as we proceeded with our wonderful, in quotes, technological civilization, about how we no longer have an awareness of our neighborhoods. That's one of the ways in which we've lost touch with, you, you used to be able to travel no faster than by foot or by horse at the fastest, slow enough still that it allowed you to see, among other things, just by looking how your neighbors are doing. Have they painted their barn this year? How, how are their gardens? You know, are they taking care of themselves? And that makes perfect sense. When I think about, like, I grew up out in the country, 12 miles out of this little town, and I think about driving to town, and you go too fast. Like, to what end? We hurry along our days. And so when I walk, especially in a new city, I wouldn't even want to explore by bicycle for me, that would be too fast because I need to be able to soak it in. And I love to use a map and like say, okay, cool. Here's an art museum. And okay, here's a way that I can get there where I hit a, a cool bridge or maybe a park or an ice cream shop or whatever. And that, to me, that skill set is fundamental to citizenship. It's easily equated, like when I talk about people making their cars too loud. I equate that with like people I've seen in a Chipotle in Austin wearing assault rifles to, <laughs> to the salsa bar. It's the old thing of like, you know, guys with small penises drive big trucks. It's, it's all an extrapolation of that sensibility. Like who hurt you that you need to like be a big, tough motorcycle of vroom vroom to tell your neighborhood that like what? Are you a an anti-hero from a 1970s film? Like, <laughs> it's it's truly painful and violent. Yeah, this whole notion that I I would love for people to have an awareness of. I'm sure, and I'm sure I even still do it in some ways. It can be represented by our sense of tourism, where if I go to Paris or the south of France or some nondescript little town in North Carolina. We've been taught, again, by consumerism to go on the channels and find out what we're supposed to go look at. And then you ignore everything else and you go see the Eiffel Tower, the, the London Eye or what have you. And you're like, OK, uh, that was whatever. And, you know, you wait in line. It's expensive. But if you just walk to it, you're, you're going to see 20 things that no one will ever blog about. One of them might be a frog. One of them might be the light coming through a window in a cool, like the world is miraculous and gorgeous. And we only are able to fully consume that, in my opinion, at, at the, the pace of walking and often walking slowly. Early on in, because the Jeeps were later when I was hiking in Sedona. Oh, right. Uh, 
But early in Glacier, there was this guy screaming to his kids about these marmots, which, by the way, it's a national park. It is not without placards telling you what the goddamn mammals are. And there's a guy screaming to his kids, you guys, there's there's a badger <laughs> screaming to his kids, you know, in a pastoral, natural setting where people are enjoying, among other things, the quiet. <laughs> And it's just that idea of like, you can be stopping admiring some poppies on the roadside and get run over by someone flooring their Hummer to get to go see the next roadside attraction. Nick Offerman, thanks so much for joining us here at The War on Cars. We really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. I'm a big fan and slowly but surely, let's get everybody on a bicycle. Absolutely. Amen. We'll put information about all things Nick Offerman in the show notes, including a link to our bookshop.org page where you can support independent booksellers and purchase a copy of Nick Offerman's book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play. Become a patron of The War on Cars. Go to thewaroncars.org, click support us, and enlist on Patreon today for just $3 per month. We'll send you stickers. Plus, you'll join such excellent company as our top Patreon supporters. Charlie G. of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the law office of Vaccaro and White in New York City, Virginia Baker, Martin Mignot, and Mark Headland. Thanks also to the sponsor of this episode, Cleverhood. This episode was recorded by Felix Levine of Felix Levine Productions. It was edited by Ali Lemer. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. I'm Doug Gordon. I'm Aaron Napperstack. I'm Sarah Goodyear. And this is The War on Cars. Here's a PSA, just in case any of you or your brothers gets within hearing distance of this audiobook. If you have tuned your car, truck, or motorcycle to growl, roar, or vroom in any way louder than is necessary, when you rev your engine and treat everyone within a quarter mile to the aggressive noise you have spent time and money to broadcast, you only sound incredibly sad. It's indistinguishable from a baby screaming on an airplane or the subway, except the baby is not doing it on purpose. To further pollute the public airspace that we all share in that manner is to be a bad citizen. Please think about what you're doing. It's painful and violent. And I would ask you to consider working out your insecurities in some other way, like Dungeons and Dragons. Cedric, I'm obviously still talking to you.